Well, we are in the book of Hebrews in uh, chapter 10. We'll finish, Lord willing, uh, this chapter this morning. We're looking at verses 32 to 39. So find Hebrews 10 in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much today for the salvation we have in Christ. Lord, we thank you that we have that assurance uh, that uh, you have redeemed us, that you have uh, purchased our salvation on the cross. And Lord, uh, we thank you again today that your word is, is so clear. And Lord, we pray today for... Uh, David, we pray that you would make the gospel not only very clear to him, but that you would grant to him the faith to put his full trust in Christ for salvation, that he would be born again, and that uh, he would then serve you uh, with a biblical understanding. And Lord, we uh, also praise you today. We praise you for sometimes the things that we take for granted, even such as heat in our building. And, uh, Lord, we thank you for that and the way that you provide daily for our needs. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you for uh, the Reformation and what it means as we think about Reformation Sunday that's coming up in a couple weeks, uh, that we can uh, celebrate and recognize what you did in clarifying for us the gospel through the Reformers. And so, Lord, we, uh, we thank you today for so many things, and we ask that you would bless now as we... Uh, study your word as we worship, as we give, as we uh, serve you, as we participate in worship today, that uh, all these things that are said and done in this place will be pleasing in your sight. Bless now in Jesus' name. One of the greatest debates among scholars in regard to the book of Hebrews is the question of who is being addressed. I personally believe this is the single greatest factor and how a person interprets this book, especially in regard to the warning passages. The other important factor for interpreting this book is the issue of whether this is an epistle or a sermon. I believe it is a sermon, and I think that affects how I approach it. 
There are, of course, elements that are common to letters of that day, especially in the last chapter. But it does not begin like a typical epistle, and it reads more like a sermon. So perhaps the best way to say it is that it is a sermon that was sent as a letter. But the reason I'm pointing this out is because it greatly affects how you interpret it, especially in these chapters where there are strong warnings. Having said that, how do we approach our present passage? It follows a strong warning not to apostatize, but it seems to be aimed more toward believers than unbelievers. Here's what I believe. I believe this is a sermon and that the author of Hebrews is doing what preachers typically do. Every preacher has to assume that there are those in his audience who are genuine believers, and there are those also who have not yet made a commitment to Christ. And although he has been strongly warning those in his audience that are in danger of falling away and becoming apostates, he now broadens things out to include those who are genuine believers as well. And I think this is similar to what we saw in chapter 6, where he issued a strong warning and then came back and said, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. That's chapter 6, verse 9. He's going to say something very similar in this present passage in verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So following this severe warning is a loving appeal not to fall away. And it is an expression of confidence that they will indeed exercise genuine faith. This is more of a general statement to the entire congregation that includes the believers. So what we have in this final section of chapter 10 is a call to faithful endurance, which will be a major theme for the rest of this book. And I have entitled this, Don't Shrink Back, because that is the primary subject of this section. For those who are yet unbelievers and may be in danger of becoming apostates, the message is not to fall away from the faith and lose eternal life. And for those who are genuine believers and may be experiencing persecution in some form, the message is to stay faithful to the Lord and not to shrink back from taking a public stand for Christ. That's what we have in this last section of the chapter. And that's how I'm approaching this. And I see three divisions in this last section. 
There are three things that the author of Hebrews admonishes his listeners to do. The first one is remember your persecution. Remember your persecution. Look with me at verses 32 and 33. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. The writer of this sermon knew his audience well, and he was aware of a time when they had endured some severe persecution. Now, we don't know the specific incident that he's speaking of here, but we know some things about it. And the main point is they had endured through this time of suffering, which is a word that means they stood their ground. This is a military term that speaks of remaining on the battlefield instead of retreating. And the admonition is that they will go back and remember those days of victory where they stood their ground and did not retreat in the face of adversity. And he's going to say that they need to do the very same thing now in their present circumstances. The word that is translated a great conflict of sufferings in the New American Standard is a word that has athletic connotations. In fact, it is the Greek word athlesis from which we get our English words athlete and athletic. This emphasizes that their previous experience of persecution had been a great struggle and a mighty contest. But they had endured successfully. But before we look at the details of this persecution, I want to just point out a couple of things here. First of all, it's interesting to note that the Song of Moses, which the author of Hebrews had just quoted, also contains the admonition to remember the days of old. And that's found in Deuteronomy 32.7. So now he's taking that song of Moses and he's applying it to his current audience. And he's admonishing his congregation to do the very same thing. You know, when you're going through a tough time of some kind, some kind of adversity, some kind of trial, getting a good perspective is the key to gaining victory through that. And sometimes it helps to go back to a previous time of suffering and remember how the Lord carried you through that. It helps you to gain the right perspective. It helps you to go back and to remember previous victories and to be reminded of the faithfulness of God. That will help you to stand firm in present trials. And looking back and remembering is always a helpful thing to do. But another thing I want to point out here is that it is possible here that the persecution that he is referring to 
is the expulsion of the Jews from Rome that was enacted by Claudius in 49 AD. This incident matches the circumstances that we know about uh, this event in history. And the reason that is important is the fact that if that is the case, it means that this was a persecution of Jews, not necessarily Christians. And if this is indeed the case, then that would explain why even unbelieving Jews would be persecuted and why even those who were still in danger of apostasy would endure this kind of suffering. And so there's some understanding. It could possibly be this uh, persecution that's being referred to. It would explain why they were willing, even if they were not yet believers, to identify with their fellow Jews who had been imprisoned, etc., It would also explain why their property was confiscated. If that is the case, then this does not necessarily have to be applied to Christian persecution. However, having said that, if you study the text, I think you'll probably come to a different conclusion. I think there are some things in this text that indicate it likely was indeed Christian persecution. And we're not told here that this was the persecution of Claudius, but many commentators assume that it was. It likely, in my opinion, points to something else. At any rate, we know they went through some kind of serious persecution, and in that time they stood firm. They endured it victoriously. What did their suffering include? Well, two main categories. Their own personal suffering and their identification with others who were in prisons. Let's walk through the details of this. First of all, the phrase, after being enlightened, either means after becoming Christians or after being exposed to the truth of the gospel. The word enlightened here is fotizo. It's used one other place in this book. And back in chapter 6, it is used, I believe, to point to those who not necessarily were converted, but those who were exposed to the truth of the gospel. So to be consistent, it probably means the same thing here as well. But the phrase knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one in verse 34, may indicate that these who have been enlightened are indeed true believers in Jesus Christ. Notice that their persecution had been of a public nature. Look at verse 33. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. The word for public spectacle is a word that means to be held up to public shame or ridicule. The Greek word is theatrizo, 
It originally meant to bring someone up on the stage. You know, you go somewhere and they say, come on up, you know, join me on the stage. That was the idea. But it was to ridicule them. This included two elements, reproaches and tribulations. In other words, verbal and physical abuse. The word that is rendered tribulations points to acts of physical violence that accompanied verbal abuse. O'Brien says these acts of violence may have included physical cruelty associated with imprisonment, beatings, and deprivation. Now, we need to understand here that this does not mean that they had suffered martyrdom. Because in chapter 12, verse 4, we read, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. They were not being put to death at this point, but they were suffering physical violence. And of course, the violence they experienced was likely intended to pressure them to abandon their beliefs or at least to deter others from joining them. But these Hebrews were not deterred. And they did not shrink back from identifying with those who had been imprisoned. Look at verse 34. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. The word for sympathy communicates the idea of being affected by the same suffering or sharing the same emotions as if they had experienced it personally. They identified with these who were imprisoned. They were willing to become sharers with those who were so treated, as verse 33 says. Interestingly, the word that's used there is the word koinonia, which is the very same word that is used for Christian fellowship in the church. And this sense of common bond drove them to sympathize with those who had been imprisoned. This also means that they publicly identified with those who had been put in prison, and that meant they were risking being put in prison themselves. In those days, if you identified with those in prison, that opened you up to risk that you also might be arrested. And they no doubt brought these prisoners needed items, food, water, clothing, apart from which they might not have survived. Bruce explains that prisoners who had no means of their own were liable to starve unless their friends brought them food and water and whatever other form of help they required. But there was something else here. Go back to verse 34. And they accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, noting, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. The seizure of their property. Now, the text does not tell us whether this seizure of property was an official act of the magistrates or if it was the result of mob violence. Both were common in that day and time. Legally, those who were convicted of crimes would often have their property seized by the government 
But many times, unruly mobs would pillage and burn the property of those who became the objects of their error. O'Brien says, often the lines between legal and illegal actions were not clear, with illegal seizures being condoned even by the magistrates. And of course, this was a very degrading thing to have all your property taken away from you. And it also resulted in the loss of livelihood for its victims, made it very difficult for them to recover So this was a time of severe persecution. But notice that these Hebrews had faced this with joy. Joy. They accepted this joyfully. This is another reason to see them as genuine believers here because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And they they had shown and demonstrated true joy in the face of this. But the real reason why they accepted this looting of their property with joy is because they knew they had a greater possession laid up for them in heaven. I mean, look at the last part of verse 34. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. They were willing to suffer the loss of their present possessions in this world, believing that they had an eternal inheritance waiting for them, one that is imperishable and will not pass away. This should be the attitude of every child of God. And whether we ever suffer the loss of all things as they did, we should hold the things of this world loosely, knowing that the eternal things that we have laid up for us in heaven are much greater than the things that we have upon this earth and that they are things that will abide forever. We can never lose them. They are eternal. Notice there is a play on words in verse 34. The word possessions, plural, is contrasted with the word possession, singular. The listeners had lost all their possessions But they had one singular possession that was greater than all that. That singular possession was eternal life in heaven. It was something that could never be taken away from them. It was not only better than what they had lost, it was that which would last for all eternity. And that leads us right up to the second thing that the hearers of this sermon needed to do. Not only did they need to remember their persecution, but the author of Hebrews admonished them, receive your promise. Receive your promise. Look with me at verses 35 and 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. The focus of this second point is that they would receive what had been promised. They knew the promise of the gospel. They knew about eternal life that was promised to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. They also knew enough about Christ to know that 
he will, in fact, keep those promises. That's why the author of Hebrews said to them, don't throw away your confidence. You can count on Christ keeping his promises. And there is great reward in having that kind of confidence. There's great reward in having the assurance of one's salvation. And of course, those who apostatize forfeit that assurance. But even those who shrink back in the face of persecution may forfeit that confidence. So he's saying, this is a precious gift. Don't give it up no matter what. Cling to this gift of assurance and confidence that you have in Christ. He's really saying to them that the boldness that they had displayed earlier was needed now. And the perseverance they displayed when they were persecuted previously is the same kind of perseverance that they needed to demonstrate now. The word for confidence has already been used twice in this book. It has been used in regard to having confidence to enter into the presence of God. So he's saying you need the same kind of confidence in the face of your current pressure not to turn away from the faith. You you need to stand firm and have endurance and retain your confidence. By the way, the word uh, reward is used again here. That word reward is going to appear several times in the next chapter as we talk about the essence of faith. Those who exhibit faith are those who are constantly looking to their reward. And just as the earlier confidence was upon the future with its better possession and abiding one, so here too their boldness should be directed to their great reward on the final day that is laid up for them. The reward, of course, is not material or earthly. It is heavenly and eternal. But he's saying, whatever you do, don't throw away your confidence. He's saying, you need to show the same kind of confidence that you had earlier when you were willing to face persecution victoriously. But notice what he tells them that they need. Notice verse 36, where you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Verse 35 is the negative side. Verse 36 is the positive side. Don't throw away your confidence. That's the negative. But instead, persevere. Show endurance. The word for endurance points to patience in the face of temptation or testing. It is the familiar word hupomone, which means to literally stand under. Under persecution, under testing, under trials of any kind. They needed to stand firm and persecure, persevere under those times of testing. What will be the result if they do that? Well, first, they'll, be, they'll do God's will. They'll accomplish God's will. They'll go out and they'll accomplish God's purpose for their lives. They will live by faith and exhibit faithful service to God. But the ultimate result is that they will receive the promise. They will secure 
that eternal reward. And the motif of promise has already appeared several times in this book. In chapter 4, verse 1, we read, Therefore let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to come short of it. The promise of eternal life remains, but you need to make sure you don't come short of attaining it. In chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, he said, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Over and over you see this idea of promise. In chapter 8, verse 6, he said, But now he, Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he also is the mediator of a better covenant, which he has enacted on better promises. What are those promises? The promises of the new covenant. The promises of complete forgiveness and everlasting life. In chapter 11, the promise motif runs really like a scarlet thread throughout this chapter. And we're going to see it mentioned at least four times in chapter 11. It is the essence of faith to cling to the promises of God and to believe that God always keeps His promises. So he says, remember your persecution, receive your promise, and then thirdly, Retain your perseverance. Look with me at verse 37. For yet a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now, it may not appear that way on the surface, but these three verses require very careful study because what we have here is really a very complex and technical passage. I'm going to try to simplify it for you, but I think it's important that we understand it properly. So I want you to think with me here for just a moment as we walk through this. In light of the admonition to have endurance in verse 36, the author of Hebrews employs a compound quotation from the Old Testament. Isaiah 26.20 and Habakkuk 2.3 and 4. The original Old Testament context refers to the first coming of Christ. It has to do with the coming of Christ to fulfill God's plan of salvation. In this passage, the coming one is the Messiah. And he's also referred to as my righteous one. The way we know him is that he lives by faith and he does not shrink back in the accomplishment of God's salvation plan. In other words... He did not shrink back 
from going to the cross for us. Now, the author of Hebrews quotes from the Septuagint instead of the Hebrew text. The Hebrew text focuses on a time of deliverance from the Chaldeans and the promise that it, that is the judgment of the Chaldeans, will come and not tarry. But the Septuagint focuses on a person. The Septuagint reads like this. If he is late, wait for him, because he will surely come and will not delay. Then it says, if he draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but my righteous one will live by faith or faithfulness. O'Brien explains, in the Septuagint, it is not simply for the fulfillment of the vision that the prophet is told to wait, but for a person. And when he appears, he will vindicate God's righteousness and will put down the oppressor. If he draws back, he will show that he is not God's chosen agent. If, however, he does not draw back, this will be evident that he is indeed God's agent or God's righteous one. Okay, you with me so far? So the context of the original text is messianic. It points to the first coming of Christ. The coming one was a clear expression by early Christians for the Messiah. But here in the New Testament, the application is changed not to Jesus' first coming, but to his second coming. O'Brien says the author of Hebrews has sharpened the messianic interpretation of Habakkuk 2.4 by adding the definite article before the participle, which transforms the messianic potential of the Habakkuk text into a clear messianic reference to the climactic eschatological event of Christ's parousia or his second coming. That simply means that he altered the text to make it refer to his second coming rather than his first. And the phrase, yet in a little while, points to the certainty of this event. So in this context, it means that the time of the confirmation of his coming is not yet, so we need to persevere in faith until he comes. We need to not shrink back, but practice endurance waiting on his second coming. But the author of Hebrews does something else here. In his quotation of Habakkuk 2.4, he inverts the two halves of the sentence so that the righteous one becomes the subject of the first two clauses. That's very complex, but let me, this is what it means. It simply means he applies the one who lives by faith to the believer. Now he's applying it to the believer. In other words, the righteous are those who live by faith. And we're going to be told that 
in chapter 11 when we look at the essence of true biblical faith. We're told in verse 4, that's what it's all about. We're told that it's impossible to please God without faith in verse 6. So, in this way, the author of Hebrews has totally reinterpreted these Old Testament texts and has applied them to his own audience. His message is that saving faith is the way not only to heaven, but to a life that pleases God. And the emphasis is on the forward-looking character of saving faith, and he's going to make that clear in chapter 11. So what this means is that the phrase, my righteous one shall live by faith, now points to the Christian believer whose faith in Christ enables him to endure hardship and suffering in the name of Christ. He also reinterprets the concept of shrinking back here. In the same way that Christ did not shrink back from accomplishing his atoning work, so we must not shrink back from being faithful to him. Now, certainly this would apply to full apostasy, but it is primarily intended to encourage faithfulness on the part of genuine believers. And the warning is that God is not pleased with us when we shrink back from following Him. By the way, don't get alarmed here that a New Testament writer would reinterpret an Old Testament passage like this. We have numerous examples of this in the New Testament, and we need to remember they did this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we need to remember that the phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, is quoted twice by the Apostle Paul, once in Galatians 3.11 and once in Romans 1.17. And it was Romans 1.17 that God used to convert Martin Luther, which started the Reformation. It is highly significant that this passage is quoted three times in the New Testament. And the point of Paul's usage of it is that you have to be saved by faith and not by works. But the way the author of Hebrews uses it is that a life of faith is then a demonstration of the saving faith that produces it. And the concept of shrinking back indicates a lack of faith. But in verse 39, he expresses his confidence that they do indeed have genuine faith and that they're not going to shrink back. Look at verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the, person, to the preserving of the soul just as he did following the warning of chapter 6. So here, again, he expresses confidence that they will indeed demonstrate genuine saving faith, that they will not apostatize, they will not turn away and fall away from the faith, but that they will embrace Christ and embrace the gospel in full. Believing that Christ will soon come, 
and that he will not delay. He has confidence that they will exercise genuine saving faith, and that will result then in the preserving of their souls. Well, what do we do with all this? How should we respond to this admonition? Well, we're to respond the same way that the author of Hebrews is exhorting his hearers to respond. We must exercise true saving faith in Jesus Christ. We are to persevere in that faith. In fact, we are to live by that faith. We are to remember the faithfulness of God in times of trials. We're to look ahead to the claiming of our promises. We're to hold fast in the face of temptation and testing. This is the message for all of us this morning. And if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, especially if you are in danger of falling away, you should put your full faith in Jesus Christ this morning. If you're already a believer, you should heed the message to remain faithful in spite of any persecution or trial that may come along. And next week, we're going to start looking at the essence of genuine faith. What does that look like? This is how we are to live. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning you would help us to um, just fully grasp this text, what it's about, what it says, what it means, how it's applied by the author of Hebrews, how it applies today in our day and time. Lord, that uh, we would be people of faith. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that has never exercised the initial saving faith of receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they would do that today. They would receive your free gift of eternal life through faith in Christ. But Lord, for all of us who are believers, that we would be people who would endure regardless of what we might face in this life that we would stand firm, that we would persevere, that we would have that settled focus on our promises, that which is laid up for us in heaven, of knowing that it far surpasses anything we might lose in this world, and that having settled our hearts on that, we might be faithful in this world as we serve you. Lord, we pray this morning you would help us to respond the way you'd want us to. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.